Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I am Emily Jane Fox. I'm here with Joe Hagan, and Joe Hagan is in his car. I'm in my car. I'm in a parking lot on the thruway. I just left the capital of New York State, Albany. Maybe you heard about it in the news because of our governor. But I was there for much more interesting, uh, or at least to me, interesting reason, which was I just got um, my first dose of the Moderna vaccine flowing through my, coursing through my veins. And I'm feeling very good about it, I gotta say. Well, you should be. This is a miracle. It is a huge day for Inside the Hive. One one giant shot for Joe Hagen, one leap for mankind. Yeah. Do you want to tell everybody how this came to be? Because I think it's a great COVID vaccine. Well, it's interesting. I'm glad that you asked that because... In recent episodes, we've talked about kind of like the disorganized quality of the rollout in various states that we live in. And, you know, anecdotally, you hear about people just basically getting vaccinated by hook or by crook, like in any way they can, you know, and there's like everybody knows some loophole or everybody's trying to figure out how to get one. And of course, I'm no different. And I heard about a program. I heard about it. I signed up. And they, you know, really very quickly said, well, show up Thursday. We're having one at the Times Union, you know, auditorium, which, by the way, I saw Bruce Springsteen there three years ago. And uh, he was fantastic. Yeah, but I, here thought, I, was. I thought you, meant you saw him there today. And I was like, what? No, not today. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was there three years ago. I saw I saw Bruce there three years ago. The ghost of Springsteen was still was still very much His there for presence. me. Um, so I went there and I put on this like uh, day glow green vest that said runner on it because that was my job. I was a runner. And my job was to go into this back room where all of these wonderful women were assembling all of the vaccine you know, syringes, the, the loaded syringes, and they would put them all into these little buckets and I would carry the buckets out onto the floor of the auditorium to all these different tables and give them to the vaccinators so that they could stick them into the people's arms. And it was just so inspiring and amazing to see this entire kind of operation rolling along. And then just to be a part of it was just fun because I felt like this is a national effort. I really never really, you know, you hear that. You hear it said. This, oh, we've got a national effort to to try to vaccinate everybody. And then you're involved in it suddenly or you're being vaccinated because there were people, you know, in line out in front. There were a thousand people that showed up today. You know, I was just there putting stickers on people that said, I've been vaccinated or, you know, 
giving the cards that you see people posting on Instagram and everywhere else. I, you know, I had those blank stacks of those to give to all the vaccinators to fill out. And, you know, you're just part of the, you're a cog in the machine, but you're just so happy to be so because you realize what an incredible effort this whole thing is and how historic of a thing it is that we're all involved in, you know? You feel the weight of it, don't you? In a good way. I felt the weight of it and I felt so kind of proud to be involved in it. And let me just tell you a funny scene. I mean, just these women I discussed, they were all worked for the Albany County Department of Health. Mm. And um, they were all back in this sort of like generic room, just all around these tables assembling these syringes and then there was one woman responsible for the vials and she'd bring them out of the freezer and then they would you know put the doses into the syringes and then organize them by how many numbers they needed because they don't want to get too many or too little you know and uh just if you'll allow me i just please as an aside i would like to tell you the names of these women because they became my friends today and uh it was kind of wonderful because they were from all walks of life and it just felt like they were like kind of a um, the matriarchy that was mm. is was helping save our public health. Mm. And uh, so there these women were uh, Celia, Susan, Terry, Vanessa, Valerie, Elizabeth, Kyla. And they uh, who was the woman who was sort of like the foreman of the whole thing. Her name is Erin. And she was like. Uh, uh, a wonderfully kind of like a warm, tough woman who at the end of my time volunteering came up to me and said the magic words, uh, well, do you want to be vaccinated? Ah. And I said, yeah, because I and it was at the end of the whole thing. We'd done all the, you know, the paying customers, quote unquote. And so I I went up to the floor and I, you know, saddled up and got jabbed. And I have to say. I felt uh, it was like a kind of a magical experience, um, and I would recommend it if you if you live in a state where they're taking volunteers to help with this effort. It's it's more than you think it's going to be. It's really at least was that way for me. I was really um, heartened by the whole thing. Mm, I'm heartened hearing it. It's a mitzvah that you volunteered and were a cog in this, and it's very very cool. And I think it's something you'll be able to tell your girls about and your girls, children about God willing someday and, and, and all the things. I also think you should write about these badass women who are in charge of it. It feels like a really great little writing assignment that I'm giving you, but, uh, you know, it's so much hearing about this day and how you're speaking about the people you volunteered with and just the awe and the majesty of being part of this historic thing. It makes me feel like so much of this incredibly historic time that we've been living through the last year has been done in private and in quiet. And so much of the despair and suffering and loss and hardship and isolation has been alone in our homes with just our, you know, if we're lucky enough to have family at home or roommates or whoever it may be, we haven't had any collective experience, whether positive or negative, uh, um, both the ability to celebrate the huge achievement that this vaccine is uh, and mourn for the many things that we've all lost along the way. 
And it just seems like we're going to have so much to make up for as the world opens up. And it's just, it's also just, I, I mean, I have been so isolated here. I think that's a function of Los Angeles culture and we've been extra, extra, extra careful. And, uh, you know, we're far away from family and we're both able incredibly luckily to work from home here. And so we don't have a real reason to not be isolated. It just makes me feel like I'm just excited to be around strangers. And I want to talk to you about like all the, I have such fantasies for life that are small in in nature, but there are things I'm just desperate to get back to. But I, the thing that I'm feeling now, I I got vaccinated earlier this week with my first dose and I I felt all the things that you felt. Uh, I was less heroic. I was not volunteering. I went to a Rite Aid, but I still felt like it's just the best moment ever. And I can't wait for my second shot in a few weeks. And um, I'm also feeling a little bit anxious about resuming life as normal, as excited as I am. And I know we have a lot of time until we resume life as normal and we will be following the CDC guidelines about what is safe for not only us, but for community and our community members. But we are coming back to New York in about a month. I have not been back to New York since February, the early February of 2020. Uh, I'm coming back to a new apartment there. I had to pack up my entire old apartment from Los Angeles and move all of my stuff to my parents' garage in Philadelphia. So I haven't seen 99% of my belongings in more than a year. I have not seen the city since I left it in normal times. I haven't really seen friends. I haven't seen coworkers. And I am like a little nervous. And I don't I don't know exactly yeah. why I am, but I'm like nervous about coming back to a place that will be different because I'm moving to a different home there um, and different because I know how much the city has changed and evolved. And I like, I don't know what life is going to look like. And of all the things that have had to change over the last year, like I've gotten in a routine, you know, and I've gotten used to a place where I've experienced the unknown and unexpected and I'm now going to be uprooting that and experiencing it in a totally different way. And I'm generally a change averse person, but there's something about this particular thing. That's like, it's giving me anxiety. And this feels like a good time to talk about my very private anxiety in front of our very many listeners. And they're here for you. I think. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. 
Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) You know what? I'm glad you said everything you said is exactly what my experience today spoke to. And first of all, myself included, I haven't been around that many people. Yes. In a year. I mean, to see that many people in one place and it was an auditorium where i had seen springsteen three years ago so it was mm-hmm. like it felt like a place where people gather like that right it, you could call it my first concert since the pandemic <laughs> uh, but it was like a vaccination concert and uh it was so moving to be back among people and everybody you could feel it in the air how people were curious to see each other and had uh, and gave each other a lot of room you know what I mean? Like uh, they were in terms of just kindnesses. There is, I think everybody's a little tentative coming out of the cave, right? And after all of this and everything we've seen. And, but we have a lot to talk to each other about, it turns out. I mean, you know, when I was with these uh, women back there assembling syringes, which I did, they conscripted me to, uh, you know, join their factory for a while. And I was putting syringes together. And uh, we started talking about just office space and how all the different companies that we'd worked for seemed like not many, as many people were going to go back to offices because it turned out so many of our institutions could function with everybody at home, right? So this wasn't something that was just unique to a journalist who works for Vanity Fair, which is owned by Condé Nast, but it, but every walk of life, you know, one woman worked at an insurance company and she had the same exact experience. So, you know... We are all going to come out and where we're all going to end up meeting will have something to do with it. I mean, uh, in, in what forum, whether it's like a, if you go out to hear some music or if you're going to go to a restaurant or if you're going to meet friends at a restaurant. As you, you know, learned from interviewing that epidemiologist last week, you know, um, we're still going to be wearing masks for a while, but you're going to have personal peace of mind about your own health, and that is going to start to liberate you in ways that are going to make you feel either anxious or totally excited. I mean, I think there's going to be a mix of people that feel like you and people who are going to be, um, as I've been joking with my friends, I said, as soon as I get vaccinated, I'm just going to walk around wearing a Speedo and flip-flops and drinking margaritas. But that's not actually going to happen. I'm just joking. I mean, you, you do you. You live your life. I would support whatever decision you make in this next phase. I mean, not whatever, within reason. But most things I would say, live your life. But I would say, overwhelmingly, I am so excited. But in, in my heart of hearts, which I bear here, I'm just nervous for a change, which I'm always nervous for in every stage of my life. But this feels like, you know, it was such a kind of traumatic period. Uh, not personally, Absolutely. I, had, I had the luckiest version of quarantine I could ever have, but you know, it, it's, it's, it's life changing in every single way for every single person. And you, you kind of hunker down when so much has changed and, uh, you settle into a routine and I'm definitely a routinized person. And so to shake up that routine that kind of sheltered you through the hardest time in our world's recent history it's just, it's like, it's jarring. I'm just a little jarred. I know that anticipation is also a thousand times worse than reality. And the second I land in New York, I'm going to be like, how did I ever leave this place? And I have some very specific fantasies that I'm looking forward to once I'm vaccinated 
that are all probably safe to do now, but I have been with withholding. I cannot wait to get a pedicure, which seems small. <laughs> yeah. But um, if you are someone who runs every single day and has a little bit of vanity, to not have uh, a pedicure for more than a year is not pretty. And I'm just so desperate for it. Um, I'm obviously so excited to see my family who I have not seen for far too long. And I'm just, I'm like desperate to see my grandparents, my parents, my Mm -hmm. in-laws, my sister, my niece, nephew, all, all of those things. And the thing I've been fantasizing about most when I do come back to New York and hopefully the weather will be starting to, to get warmer. And I just want to walk aimlessly for hours on the street. I will wear a mask proudly, happily, because it is not a political statement and just a public courtesy. But I just, I just like, I remember for the nine years that I lived in the city, just like having maybe like one errand to do that was in a different neighborhood and it would be twilight and I would just, I'd leave my apartment and I'd walk somewhere that was like probably just slightly too far for a comfortable errand. And then I'd walk all the way home and I'd get home and my legs would be like kind of burning. And I just sit on my couch mm-hmm. and I will have seen all the neighborhoods. I will have seen all the restaurants that were brimming with people at happy hour. And even if I didn't stop in anywhere, just like the act of seeing life is such a thing that I miss. And I can't wait to just yeah. observe life. I obviously want to live mine and there are so many things that I can't wait to do. But I just want, I'm just desperate to like observe life too. Yeah. And to have random things happen. Yes. That you can observe and that change your mind in an instant about something or give you an inspirational moment. I mean, anybody that's read a book of poetry knows that, you know, so many flights of inspiration and that the muse of just our lives has so much to do with being out among people and and having, you know, the kind of a pinball effect of just bouncing out around in the world, especially when you're living in New York. Because it's that's the magic of New York is you're walking around and there's you're in the crowd like Walt Whitman. Yes. Right. So um, that's uh, that's something I desperately look forward to, you know, and to extract us from the virtual world that we've been stuck in kind of to a in in a dead end kind of way which brings me to something that we have been talking about on this podcast and just privately with people we know a couple of months ago when it was the end of the last presidential administration uh, last white house we talked about how wow when when this guy's gone and this news cycle cools down you know that the effect on the media and people in our business would be one of like a depression. You know, there would be a a kind of like PTSD maybe, but also a kind of like suddenly there would be an absence of the five alarm kind of um, adrenaline that we were all living on. And, uh, you know, recently we had a meeting uh, of the editorial minds at The Hive and our editor, Miriam Elder, said some wise things. She said, well, I think it makes sense that the reading public is taking a step back after all of this and trying to, you know, 
kind of reclaim themselves. Everything they've been forced to pay attention to, like you're in the clockwork orange with your eyes pried open, you know, watching the ultraviolence. You know, this is like, this is, um, I think that what we're going through now and the anxiety you're talking about and the experience I had today are all part of this process of moving out of this uniquely horrible time that we were in. And there's going to be a lot of uncertainty. What what does constitute news now? What what should we be paying attention to? What is important? And, uh, you know, are we overreacting? Are our reactions to things now kind of warped by how we reacted so much to what we saw before in those previous years? So, you know, I, I do think, uh, but the opportunity in this moment is so high. And it's one that I think that, you know, I think there's lots of critical reporting to be done about the Biden administration, but I think Joe Biden's kind of like uh, absence from the news cycle while also getting things done uh, that we can read about in the news every day. And it might not be the stuff you click on because you're like, oh, there's a new, you know, Department of the Interior uh, appointee. And then you're like, oh, I don't need to know anything about that book. But, you know, the fact that everything's been turned, you know, the other way. It's been reversed, right? Now we'd have an absence of five alarm news and things are getting done. That is good. And that allows you to open your door, walk outside into that beautiful Los Angeles sun, which I'm jealous of right now, and, uh, you know, rejoin the world. And, you know, you can do it in baby steps, right? <laughs> or you can, uh, you know, find your way out there on your own. And um, it's going to be part of all of our collective journeys, but also our individual journeys. I can't believe I use the word journey so much. Very uh, the bachelor of you. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. I... Couldn't agree with everything you said more. I have been just relishing in the fact that I like really couldn't give less of a shit about any news that's happening right now. And maybe that's my own uh, overcorrection, but it just feels like business as usual, government as usual. And I am obviously paying very close attention to everything that's happening, but it feels Everything is high stakes. There's a a lot happening in Washington. There's a lot happening around the country. There's a lot happening in the world. But it feels like normal work is happening and there are competent people making those things happen. And I, if I don't look at Twitter for three hours, like, I'll be good. I may even be better for it. Yeah. I think that mm -hmm. the combination of that... Added to the fact that people are going to be leaving their houses and their phones and the internet because they've been so starved for actual human interaction, as we've been talking about, is going to create this like cleanse that I think we desperately need. There's so much hate on the internet and so much rush to judgment about people on the internet. And um, I literally hate the term cancel culture now 
because it has been so co-opted and is the only thing that they talk about on Fox News because there's no reason to talk about President Biden. And it has become like the new culture war that the right has glommed onto because they have the economy is good under a democratically controlled White House and Congress and they have nothing else except for to glom onto a culture war, which has been their tactic for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Decades. Yes. And I think that this, if you want to refer to a culture of like judgment on the internet uh, by people who are anonymized and platformed and uh, isolated and alone and disenfranchised, is like it has reached a fever pitch and we've obviously been building to this moment for as long as the internet has existed. And we talked about this a lot when we had um, the two fantastic disinformation reporters on from NBC news, but it is just like, it's gross and it's disheartening and it's leading to some really scary things. And so my hope is that with news being normalized and with people actually being able to leave their houses and, go out in the world. Uh, I hope that that just steadies a little bit because where we are now is not healthy for anybody and it's leading to rashness and hate. And I hope that's like the thing that we leave behind in this pandemic era. Well, there's nothing um, better or more curative of all this outrage culture on social media that kind of exacerbates all the things you're talking about and is the source of them than people walking away from their computers. So, you know, if when the summer rolls around and people feel more comfortable going outside and can go to public events, you know, within within reason, whatever we decide, you know, from state to state is the reasonable way to do it. I mean, that's the, the cure for everything that we've been talking about. Frankly, it's like, you know, the sunlight cure, I guess you could call that. So one of the things that I'm hoping will be a fallout from all of this is that, and I've been thinking a lot about this, that we can go back to doing what you and I, I think probably in our journalism careers, focus on the most, which is doing um, longer, more thoughtful journalism. You know, thinking about things with uh, more depth, writing at length, appealing to people's longer attention spans and to their sense of being able to be present and thoughtful and fascinated um, in ways that don't have to do with the miniature news nuggets that drive these news cycles that we're talking about. You know, now that may be uh, optimistic of me or like, um, you know, the rose colored glasses, but I do think that people's sense of personal alarm about what's going on in the world has shortened all of their attention spans, you know. And um, in many ways, what we do in the long form print journalism is probably providing, it, it provides context for all of this stuff. And we help people digest it and, and understand, you know, things in a, in a way that uh, grounds them, I hope. Um, I think that's right. I, I, I personally noticed that my attention span is better um, I am able to read yeah. fiction again, which I hadn't really been able to do. Uh, I really spend so much less time on Twitter and I listen to things. I listen to podcasts that are not only news. Um, I've been listening to a lot of audiobooks, and I'm just like, I just find I'm enjoying life so much more and it will just be such an amazing change. And, and 
I want to get you out of your parking lot. But before we go, I think we should just mention the events that happened this week. And this is news that is worth tuning into um, of the shootings in Georgia. And uh, we have seen a rash of racism, of violence, of hate crimes against Asian Americans in this country, um, particularly Asian American women. And we can't not mention it. And I think there's obviously a very clear through line of of how it was fomented over the last four years uh, under our former president's administration and on the internet and on Fox News and Facebook. And it should be scary and devastating for everybody. And um, I'm Jewish and I grew up Jewish and uh, my parents growing up were one of the things that I just like remember my parents saying so much is that like hate against any group is hate against every group. And maybe it wasn't exactly mm-hmm. in those terms, but that's that was exactly the meaning. And it is scary what is happening. And I think, uh, I know that we're going to talk about this a lot on our podcast, I believe next week, but uh, we need to figure out how to be good allies to people who are facing this kind of discrimination and violence. And there are a lot of people who are rightfully very scared and really angry about what's happening. And um, we should just keep talking about the ways that we can support people who are feeling that way and to try and be there for people who are who are feeling all the, the right feelings and to try and figure out a way out of this darkness and depravity and all the scary shit that's going on. Well, let me offer something that I think can leave us on an up note. Please. You know, I recently got in touch with an old friend who was, I worked in democratic uh, politics in Washington sort of like was loosely associated with the Clintons at one time in Chicago, but has since um, become involved in a program in Chicago that I think is really beautiful. And I've always wanted to mention it or write about it, but it's called um, the People's Music School in Chicago. And uh, it is a organization that was founded by a woman, Dr. Rita Simo, who was like a... um, she was an immigrant living in a underprivileged, you know, in a, in a difficult neighborhood in Chicago and decided she wanted the children to have a great music education and, you know, brought in music teachers and people that knew how to play their instruments and to teach, you know, young people of color who wouldn't ordinarily be, you know, have access to that kind of education, you know, teach them how to play instruments. And it's since exploded into a thing where... Barack Obama got involved and they had a performance of the People's Music School at the founding of his of his uh, Chicago Foundation as a nonprofit. And to bring up the royals, uh, uh, Prince Harry was there as, as well at the opening. Uh, hello. But um, and, and it's this kind of beautiful, moving thing uh, that and, and tomorrow or I should say Friday night, if you're listening to this, they're having uh, what they call Big Night 2021. And it's um, Esperanza Spalding is going to be playing with with the kids and the Soul Rebels from New Orleans who are friends of John Baptiste's. And um, 
it's going to be this kind of, uh, if you're looking for inspiration and ways in which the world could look uh, brighter rather than darker, then you should check out this. Uh, go to the, you know, peoplesmusicschool.org and check it out. Um, That's because, a great note. Because, uh, as you know, I'm a, hu- I'm a huge music um, geek, but um, I do believe that things like this, where you form community around something like music and have a mentoring program that can lift people up out of their circumstances. You know, being poor in Chicago, you know, suffering from the kind of uh, racism that goes on just structurally so that you can't get access to this kind of education ordinarily. Suddenly there it is in front of you. And it was invent. it was created by one woman. It was one woman's vision. And then it kind of grew into this miraculous thing. And, um, Anyway, I, I hope that people will check it out, and I, uh, I I say all that as a way to start thinking about things you haven't been thinking of because you couldn't. And now we can um, try to improve not only other people's lives, but our own sense of uh, how we're going to connect to the rest of society when we come out of our houses with our vaccinations. Amen. Be good people. Be good members of the community. Listen. Do your part. And I feel so much better having talked to you. You are a real trooper for, for, for the day that you had and for doing this in a, in a rest stop, bumming off of some rest stop <laughs> Wi-Fi. If you could see Joe's setup, you would be totally charmed as I am. And next week, we're going to have a great interview, a great episode for you. But in the meantime, stay healthy, stay safe. And we will see you right back here next week. See you next week, Emily. America has a problem, one that is uniquely ours. On the new season of Long Shadow, I delve into the complicated history of firearms from the Second Amendment to the AR-15. I try to make sense of how we got here and how we might find a path forward. From Longlead, PRX, and Campside Media... In collaboration with The Trace, I'm Garrett Graff, and this is Long Shadow in Guns We Trust. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.